0: Amy helper
1: left, And I'm John Moscow. Welcome to Ethical Schools. Our guest today is Justin Cohen, a writer, organizer, activist, and dad. His work explores how education, race, privilege, and public policy intersect. He served on the Education Policy Committee for Barack Obama's 2008 presidential campaign. Justin Cohen's recently published book is Change Agents, Transforming Schools from the Ground Up. Welcome, Justin.
2: Thank you for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Would you briefly describe what Change Agents is about?
2: Sure. Change Agents grew out of the work of a San Francisco-based nonprofit organization called Partners in School Innovation. And what they've done is fairly uh, simple to describe, but really hard to do. They work with educators, teachers in traditional public schools in mostly um, neighborhoods that serve historically marginalized families and kids. And they work together with those educators to make the schools better over time, relying on a lot of the tools that have been created in the field of improvement science and continuous improvement. And so they have done that work for 25, 30 years and For about three or four years, I spent time talking to educators who had worked with them to try to craft a more generalizable story about what it takes to do school transformation. And so this book is sort of an amalgam of those stories and also some deep reporting on the historical context and the local communities where those improvement efforts happened.
1: Can you took, I know that one of the key elements in Partners in School Innovations' work is results-oriented cycles of inquiry, or as they yeah. call it, ROSI. Could you talk a little bit about what that is, what that involves?
2: Sure. Um, I describe Rosie as a really fancy way of talking about habit building. Habit building is really hard, right? There's a reason that people pay for gym memberships and never go. You have to build practices to generate sustainable, lasting processes that lead to improvement, whether you're talking about you know, habit change in your daily life or in sort of creating a context where educators working at the school or school level can get better together. So, so Rosi is this process that sort of institutionalizes improvement. So, it starts with getting together with a group of your peers and uh, like basically identifying an area that needs improvement, picking some strategies you think might lead to improving that area. So, let's call maybe it's reading instruction, maybe it's teaching fractions, something very specific then you commit with a group. So you're with the team. So maybe it's the second grade teachers at a school, maybe it's the history department at a high school, you say, we're going to watch each other teach. And then we're going to get back together, we're going to give each other feedback on how that went, we're going to look at whether those changes we made to how we teach had an impact on, on instruction. If it's working, great, we keep doing more. If it's not, we keep trying. And if after a while, it's not working, we try something else. That's kind of it. And then at the end of the process, there's reflection built in. And I think that's really important, as a lot of times, because of the speed and, and frequency of change in schools, you try new things, you never really reflect how stuff went. And the reflection process is really what a lot of people say leads to the lasting, sustainable changes they see over time.
0: In the book, you make some suggestions for organizing the school community that in many ways resemble organizing any community, only Mm. this time it's with kids and with a constantly changing population because kids graduate. Is that correct?
2: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, I spend a lot of time community organizing, and it occurs to me that a lot of the tools of community organizing, you know, starting with a small group, picking really definable wins, celebrating those wins, using those wins to build momentum, are very applicable in a school's context
1: you know it strikes me that that's not something that most teachers or administrators learn to do in any kind of structured way certainly not in their professional training what what are some of the things that you think if people are interested in doing this that they should be thinking about or what kind of support should they be looking for how do you, how would somebody go about wanting to do this
2: yeah, it's, it's a great point. And, and one of the su- sort of subtext elements running through the book is you didn't learn a lot of this stuff in ed school, and that's okay. It doesn't, it's not an indictment of your preparation. Um, it's not necessarily to say that you made bad decisions where you learned how to be a teacher. It's just to say that some of the skills that we've come to see are really valuable for driving improvement, particularly at a systems level, just aren't the kind of things you would get in sort of sort of a standard training and pedagogy and instruction. So, you know, the other things you need to know, like how to being a leader in a rapidly changing and unstable context, how to drive the distribution of resources within and between schools, public communications, um, public relations, building relationship with your community, building relationship with parents, building relationship across linguistic differences. So you see a lot of communities in this country where You have a teaching force that is one demographic and um, you have families coming from other countries in the South, you know, it's predominantly Latin American, Spanish speaking countries. And you have the situation where families and kids are literally speaking a different language than the teachers. So figuring out how to not just teach in that context, but to build trust those are really hard things and again they're not often on the syllabus at your your schools of education. So my hope is that teachers can pick up this book and sort of recognize that oh my gosh there are a bunch of skill sets that I may may not have encountered yet that are that are super valuable to this to this project. And also that you don't need to do all of it, right? Like if you're a math teacher and you teach 6th grade, I'm not expecting you to become a crackerjack community organizer politician community, you know, development specialist, et cetera, et cetera all at once. But like among the team of teachers that you work with, it's probably a good idea for you all to sort of figure out how each of you picks up some other skill sets that can help drive this. Which by the way, the subtext there is it's a lot of work. Um and this this stuff can feel like a lot of work, especially to to educators who are sort of still who I know from the ones I talk to anyway, are still reeling from from COVID. We're still, you know, in some ways, muddling through the government and and public sector response to the pandemic. I mean, teachers, almost more than any other profession, have been the ones bearing the brunt of our society's expectations, all of that. So I think the key here is to sort of do new and creative things without making it feel like you have so much more to do that your already hard job has become completely undoable.
1: In the book, you talk very bluntly, but non-judgmentally, about the importance and also the difficulties of having meaningful conversations about race and systemic racism. Mm -hmm. What seemed to be the most successful in the schools that you looked at?
2: Yeah. I I always want to preface this by saying, like, I am a white male who grew up in the suburbs um, and who, like anyone else in sort of my generation, I think was led to believe that racism was a thing of the past and that while it was an important sort of contextual factor in understanding our history, it wasn't necessarily like the biggest problem in the present. And then, you know, I've certainly like, just hopefully most people in this country have been disabused of that notion over time. But I think that educators in particular are, you know, encounter history and present of structural racism and discrimination in their schools and often come from communities where it probably wasn't a topic of conversation you know 78% of teachers are white women and we're getting to a point where the majority of school children in our public schools are children of color and so you have these disparities between the demographic of the teaching force on the one hand and the students on the other hand and you could either look at that and say, well, this is an impossible problem, so we shouldn't even address it. Or we could view it as an opportunity to say, like, look, we need to work with our educator workforce and say, there are blind spots you're going to have rooted in the identity you bring to school, not in the identity of your kids. And I think that's the challenge. That's what drives us to sort of talking about kids with a deficit lens is saying that, like, oh, certain you know marginalized communities come to school with more challenges. That may be true, but the equal and, and, and sort of sort of converse challenges that you as a white teacher probably are coming to school with blind spots relative to their experience, and which you have the ability to control because you are the adult in the room. And mm-hmm. so having those conversations is really hard. People take them really personally. It spikes every kind of anxiety in a world in which people are deeply afraid of being accused of being racist or having racist thoughts or doing racist things. Saying that, hey, we need to talk about the extent to which your practices are rooted in the history of race can just trigger everyone's flight response. So, one of the things we try to do in the book is describe constructive ways to have those conversations without triggering those those sort of fear responses. One is through really personal storytelling and sharing among adults about their own personal experiences. So, if you start with your you know most trusted peers in and. In a, Grade level team, or as a faculty, telling your own racial biographies and saying, like, hey, here's where I come from. Here's the experience I have. Not to say, oh, this is an excuse for my behavior, or this is like, you know, how I want to be judged or seen. More to say, like, this is the context that I am entering this environment, and this is how I want to be seen and understood and heard. From there, more complexity you have students talk to educators like there's a thing we describe in chapter three or four in the book where a group of middle school students talk to educators about their own experience as black children in particular in this case at a school where there's a lot of white faculty and they describe you know feeling like the other and they describe instances where they feel like teachers did things that were predicated on race that might be hard to hear but it is this truth the students were speaking so that, you know, that's another way. And then the, another way we describe in the book, which is probably the most complicated, is what's called a fishbowl exercise, where people act out a role play really complicated situations that can be rooted in race. The specific instance we describe in the book takes place at a school in Michigan, where the, the situation basically blew up and two faculty members literally in the middle of a role play, start fighting each other, not physically, but like emotionally fighting each other over one being one thing, and the other one was calling a racist. And those things happen. Like, and we have to be honest about it, because there's no way to talk about race without raising some of our worst biases and fears.
1: So I was very interested in the, in your description of the fishbowl in, in Grand Rapids, I believe it was. And I'm just curious, um, and I didn't see this, and maybe I missed it, but did the team figure out a way of moving forward from that? And were they able to get any of the conversations going in a more productive kind of way? Yeah.
2: So just to quickly describe the situation, a parent had come to the school and approached an administrator and said... One of your teachers talked to me in a condescending way, and I think it's because she is white and I am black. And a different school in the same district heard about this and decided to use it as a role play activity to see if they could figure out how to handle that situation. And so one person played the principal who had gotten the feedback from from the parent, and then another person played the teacher who was going to be sitting with the principal to receive that feedback. And it just went off the rails instantly. Most of the other faculty in the school thought that the principal, the pr- principal, I'm putting it in air quotes because I'm playing the principal, was, was, was calling the teacher racist. And it very heated very quickly. And they ha- ended the activity and it was very unsatisfying. And what happened after the fact, from what I understand, is that the team learned a couple of things. Like, one is you have to build up to those kind of things. Like this was the first time they'd even used a fishbowl activity at the school. And it was it was probably the most heated thing you could do, right? They, they picked like the most freighted topic possible. And so they just didn't have the sort of tools as a team to do that well. And so they went back and they did some lower intensity fishbowls with topics that didn't have as, as deep an emotional rooting as as race. And then built back up to having these sorts of conversations. The other thing they did is they just had small team meetings with all the grade level teams after the fact to debrief what had happened and said like, "Hey, nobody feels great about how that went. Let's talk about it and why it went that way." And I think that was, you know, in some ways, that's one of the most important stories in the book. Although it's in some the most some ways the most cringeworthy one because everybody came back to school on Monday. Everybody had to do their job, and this happens all the time where things don't go well and we have to get back together with our peers and try again more importantly racist stuff also happens all the time and people show up the next day as well so i think on the one hand i want to be honest about the fact that you know, addressing racism can cause people to get upset but it's probably not it's, it's probably not as damaging as the racism <laughs> Um, that continues to perpetuate, and if we don't find ways to address it, we're going to have, be having this conversation. Our children are going to be having this conversation. Our grandchildren are going to be having this conversation when we probably should try to put it to bed within our lifetimes. Again, aspirational, but you know where where I'm pointing.
0: Just like with any movement, or, um, it's important to have some early wins. Yeah, and I'm wondering how you do that. How do you make that happen?
2: Yeah. It's a great question. Early wins are important. And I think the key is to pick manageable changes. So there's a story in the book about a school in San Jose, California, the Cesar Chavez School, where a huge number of the young people at the school are learning English as a second language, who speak Spanish at home, who are getting into the upper grades without having done basic English phonemic awareness and fluency work and so are, you know, in fourth and fifth grade without these basic reading abilities. And one thing that teachers in that context decided to do is just start doing, like, screeners to, like, figure out whether or not kids are at grade level on some of these core foundational on some of these core issues of reading comprehension and, and decoding and and figuring out oh my gosh, like if we just did some basic remedial work, um, we would we would see some immediate wins and that's that's one place where you can see some immediate wins and where I've seen schools very quickly start to address some foundational problems. And so I think discovering that you have an ability to address a problem can be almost as, I guess, liberating as solving the problem, like just being on the right track. And so I think that's one thing where people really start to, to feel good. The other thing is there are some basic issues around classroom management that just, for one reason or another, don't seem to be a part of a lot of teacher preparation. Some basic tools of, of student engagement, some basic prep you can do in the first few days of school that just make your life easier that one of the teachers in chapter five talks about that. I, I think that those are some early, some quick wins too, where you can just get some, you get your classroom feeling a little bit more like a safe and, and productive space and less like a place of chaos that all, those wins matter too. And and the other thing I'll say is having, I take sort of a lot of time in the book to distinguish between measurement and testing because Because for, I think, the last generation's obsession with standardized testing means that whenever you mention accountability or measurement, people assume you mean like end of year standardized tests. And I don't mean that. I mean, measurement. I mean, things that you can measure so that you can know if they're improving. And so that's just another thing that I wanted to make sure I I say is that as we pick quick wins, it's really important that they're measurable, but it's really important that you don't mistake measurement for testing.
1: Yeah, following up on that, as you say, that accountability all too often means punitive measures if standardized test scores don't rise quickly. What's your definition of meaningful accountability? And you you just referred a little bit to you know yeah. that you have measurement, but what does accountability mean more broadly?
2: I, I want to sort of differentiate my answer because at the at the the level we're discussing in the book, the book is very much about. Some uh, stuff that is useful to educators on a day-to-day basis. And and for something to be useful to educators on a day-to-day basis, it needs to, like, generate feedback within a week. It needs to be actionable. It needs to be connected to classroom practice. So in that sense, peer accountability and accountability to a group of educators who are are working with a similar group of kids seems more important than almost any other kind. Like, you could be the secretary of education and come down on a classroom teacher, and it wouldn't matter. Like, But if you are a secondary teacher and the teacher across the hall and the other teacher down the hall are working together on a similar problem of practice, you know, like you want to improve. You're talking to each other about the data that indicates you're going to improve. I think that at some level is the most important and powerful kind of accountability because it's rooted in, in learning and in reflection and you getting better as a professional, which is the root of professional growth in every other profession. And in you know, in education, we've decided that it's actually rooted in these other things that are much l- more tenuously connected to classroom practice in some ways. At a more like systemic level, I, I do think accountability needs to start considering the long-term health of communities and the long term opportunity of families to have economic mobility this is where my my lefty politics start creeping more and more into into the conversation. But if we have massive wealth inequality, and we have calcified class and race dynamics, but the schools are great, like that doesn't make any sense to me, right? But I do think there are some people who are like, hey, if we can just find the right testing regime, this is a little bit of a tangent. But, you know, I was watching this interview with the Sam Altman, the CEO of open AI who developed chat GPT. He said something like, you know, this thing might destroy tons of jobs, but we're going to create better ones. And I was like, first of all, history might disagree with you in terms of technology creating jobs. And he's like, and an education will have the ability to customize education for every kid. So they'll be ready for those new jobs. I'm like, also, see history, sir, because what we see happening is that technology is exacerbating wealth gaps and that education cannot stand in that breach, right? You can't have a society where a few people have all the wealth and the schools are left to prepare kids for jobs that don't exist. And we, and then we say schools are failing. Like, that is an untenable situation. So until we start thinking about schools and their performance connected to, like, the long-term health and well-being of communities and socioeconomic opportunity, I think we're going to be caught in a really dead-end conversation about testing. Thing. Yeah.
0: What strategies did you find were the most valuable in improving communication between teachers and parents, mm. especially when, when there are race and class differences?
2: I talk about this revolutionary technique in the book called listening, <laughs> and and I find that the teachers who practice listening really do better on this. And and by that, I mean, like legitimately practicing listening, like sitting knee to knee with a peer and not saying anything for 10 minutes while that person tells you a story and and, and listening to hear another person's experience versus listening to figure out what you're going to say next or how you are going to address their problems, like really listening. There's like a whole section of chapter two, I think about sort of techniques to improve your ability to listen. And I think that's probably the most effective way to to work across class, race, gender, generational difference with with parents and community members is to to really think of yourself as a receiver of information and not a transmitter. Parents of kids in schools and particularly in historically marginalized communities are often coming into school with a lot of baggage, often from that very school, and see the teachers, yes, as, as professionals, but also potentially as yet another person who's going to stand in the way of, of of their own opportunity. So I think listening is is probably the, the most powerful thing you can do. And the other thing is, is, is taking steps as an educator to learn the history of a place, especially if you're not from the community. This is different. I mean, there are some places where the majority of teachers come from outside a neighborhood to teach in it. Other cases, excuse me, where educators almost all come from the community. If you're coming into a community from outside of it to be a teacher, you have to take steps to understand the sort of totemic importance of, of certain elements of a community. Why, if you change the mascot, people are going to be upset. Like, why, if you discount the history of, of the marching band, people are going to get upset. Like, you have to understand those things. Um, and that's your responsibility, I think, as an educator. And then the last thing, which is, again, this is like the next level, but is participating in the other struggles that are confronting families. Um, education is one of a bunch of interlocking systems that are going to affect people's, that's going to affect people's lives and spe- affect your children's lives. And if if the community sees you in, as an, at least as a sympathetic partner, if not an outright accomplice and ally in addressing those things, I think you're going to have a better time relating to those families and candidly a better time pushing back when you need to push back, right? Like it has to be two ways. Like sometimes you have to say like, Hey, like we're doing things this way for a reason. Um, And we need your support in that. Like I was just visiting a school, a preschool in Southeast DC um, that's really struggling with behavior management post-COVID because a lot of kids haven't been really introduced to anything more than their home in terms of a social environment. And so the students are coming into preschool at three years old, pre-K at four years old, having never been around more than one or two other kids. And so this, like, why are we surprised that we're experiencing Behavior management challenges in that context. And so, you know, educators at school were saying, like, we need to sit down with like families and community members to talk about like what our expectations for the school are and how that might be contrary to what expectations are at home around behavior. Like that can manifest in really paternalistic ways if it's done ham-handedly. But it can also manifest in really constructive and liberatory ways if it's done well. And the difference between it being done ham-handedly and well can be like razor thin. So I think that's another place where. Where educators need to really practice.
1: Did you see schools that were working in a systemic way on on the issue of listening, on the issue of getting out into the community?
2: The one the one story we tell in the book that has sort of answers that is the is Demetris's story. So Demetris Rice Mitchell is the principal of a school in San Francisco. I anonymize that school name, so I, I I forget whether it was Amos. Freeman School or Susan McKinney Smith School in the book. But one of those two schools, which is a San Francisco elementary school, she took her teachers on a bus tour to important historically black institutions in that city, including churches, including community based organizations. And I thought that was like a really powerful thing. She noticed a lot of teachers were like driving in from the from the suburbs and driving out at night. And so they did a bus tour and they went and they visited places and they and they listened and they set up panels and they talked to elders. And I thought that was um, a really powerful, systematized way to do that. There's other stories as well, but that one strikes me as important.
1: In some districts like New York, there's been a tension between the effort to improve existing schools and starting fresh with new schools, yeah. often smaller within the same buildings. What are your thoughts on this? Um, I have changed my thoughts on this over time. So I wrote a,
2: a piece many years ago about sort of that distinction in the Stanford Social Innovation Review about starting fresh with brand new schools versus turning around existing schools. And over time, I have come to see that the community strife, the facilities costs and the communications challenges of opening new schools are pretty extraordinary. And their track record on the aggregate isn't much better than existing schools. Yeah, there are people that are big charter school supporters will point to like the absolute highest performing schools and be like, see, it's better. And you're like, you are cherry picking the absolute best examples. Traditional public schools could do that, too. We could go to all of the places with magnet schools and pick out the absolute best schools and say that, look, these are better. So I find that they, it's a really it, it's a fairly dishonest conversation when it comes to the biggest boosters of school choice in particular. And it's incredibly disruptive to start schools. And, and you know, I worked with a foundation a number of years ago to sort of look at the sort of return on investment of starting new schools versus investing significantly in existing schools. And it's actually a much higher return on investment to invest significantly in existing schools because of the facilities costs, because of the transaction costs, because of the rehiring costs, because new schools all start with one grade and then build up from that one grade. Now, nobody's ever made that data public because it sort of flies in the face of what philanthropy has been working on for the last 25 years. But I've come to believe that it is Usually a better, again, again, I'm not, I'm, you're not talking to a fiscal conservative here, but a better investment to go and work in traditional schools. Now it is harder, that is harder work, it is longer work, and it is not as sort of immediately satisfying because you know if you walk into a a high school in New York City with a thousand kids, not that there are many of those anymore, but if you walk into a large urban high school and other places, and you're at the beginning of a change management process that will have much messier than a sixth grade classroom in a school that's one grade of kids that just started this year. You know, so I think that there's an optics issue here, too, where we're sort of judging radically different things against each other. This is like a much longer conversation where I have many, many thoughts, but that's my quick answer to a more complicated discussion.
0: Yeah. What are two or three of the most urgent policy changes you'd like to see on either local or statewide or even national level?
2: Am I, am I allowed to go super magic wand on this with like things that sure. are out of the realm of political possibility?
1: Sure. Go ahead.
2: Go for it. Go for okay. It. I, would, I would just get rid of school districts as we know them and abolish the linkage between property tax revenue and school finance. A lot of states have sort of corrected the worst disproportionalities and inequities that are linked to that by pulling a much more significant chunk of school funding from the local and making it more state funded. So there's some correction of that, but the foundational problem is still there, which is that as a country, we've said that like real estate taxes finance schools. And so that means basically housing wealth and school segregation will always be deeply connected. So I think that would be like number one, which just be like, get rid of that. Um, this is the only place where I think Warren Buffett makes some sense. Cause he said, you know, what would he do to change schools? And he said he would abolish private schools and assign everyone randomly to a public one. Like he makes a good point. If you distributed privilege randomly in our public schools, you would have a lot less connection between the quality of school and your incoming wealth. So that, that's like, that's probably the biggest one and the most unlikely, The other one that's connected to that, which again, totally unlikely, but I think we're thinking about more deeply is a constitutional right to a free education. My mom was a special ed teacher and one of the most transformational things that happened for students with disabilities was in the seventies when IDEA was passed and you suddenly had standing as an individual citizen to challenge the system on the basis of the quality of education provided to you if you have a disability, right? Mm -hmm. If you are marginalized because of sex, race, socioeconomic status, all these other things, you do not have standing right, to challenge the system because there is no constitutional right at a federal level, at least, to an education. A lot of state constitutions guarantee something like this, but it's just a lot flimsier from the standpoint of standing. Right. So I think having a constitutional right to an education would be an incredibly powerful thing that would give the individual a lot more power in the face of really problematic and tractable systems. So those are the two like really aspirational ones that I think are unlikely to happen in my lifetime, but I like to mention because I think they should at least be a part of the discourse at a much more pragmatic level. Schools should teach kids how to read. I'm not saying that tongue in cheekily. I'm saying that very seriously. Emily Hanford's podcast, sold a story is going to push everybody's buttons from a bunch of different political angles, but people should listen to it because it's basically about how a lot of schools just don't teach reading anymore. And it's part of, you know, there's a lot of reasons for it. And I try not to ascribe blame, but if schools, and this is not just true of traditional public schools, this is true of private schools, Waldorf schools, like it's true of schools in all different kinds of communities and contexts is, is schools have not, have not invested a lot in teaching children how to read at the earliest grade levels. And so that would be something is if we just figured that out and sort of went back to basics, I think we'd be in a different place.
1: It's interesting. We've actually had a couple of episodes around a couple of the issues you mentioned. The late Bob Moses was pushing for a constitutional amendment and started an organization, or movement called We the People. Yep. Um, and he spoke about that. And we also had a couple of conversations about a suit in Rhode Island, in Providence, Mm -hmm. which was designed, they went to federal court to make the case for the right to do an education that in that case, I believe they said that students weren't getting social studies education. And the judge ruled against them, but basically said, I have to rule against you, but I think you're absolutely right. And wrote, in fact, a decision that endorsed everything they were saying, but he said, you know, under Supreme Court decisions, I don't have any choice but to, um, to disagree, uh, to rule against you. I think the other question is certainly a big question. You know, I think we haven't really had an episode specifically about the latest chapter in the reading wars. I have to say that I'm very skeptical of this whole science of reading movement, it sounds like a lot of things that have been, you know, hanging out for a number of years coming back again. But that's that's another that is another oh, another <laughs> issue. Another so, problem. thank you, Justin Cohen. Justin's new book is Change Agents: Transforming Schools from the Ground Up, and it's really an exciting book. I just want to really congratulate you on it. It's written in a really warm and inviting way and i think it talks about just how difficult things are but also very much what people can do on kind of a a day-to-day kind of basis just personally i really recommend people reading it oh thank you that's the
2: best compliment i could possibly have gotten for this
0: and thank you, listeners. Check out our new video series, What Would You Do?, a collaboration with Dr. Mira Levinson of the Harvard Grad School of Education and Ed Ethics. Go to our website, ethicalschools.org, and click the video. In the first case study, a teacher using action civics faces pushback from a parent. The goal of the series is not to provide right answers, but to illustrate a variety of ethical viewpoints. If you found this podcast worthwhile please share it with a friend or colleague subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating or review this helps others to find the show check out our website for more episodes and articles and to subscribe to our monthly emails we post annotated transcripts of our interviews to make them easy to use in workshops or classes we work with consultants to offer customized sel programs the focus on ethics for schools and youth programs in the New York City and San Francisco areas. Contact us at hosts at ethicalschools.org. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Ethical Schools. Our editor and social media manager is Amanda Denshi. Until next week.